going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Greetings and salutations, my friends. A very happy Monday. Very rested up, very relaxed, very ready to go here. Busy week in store, uh, not just on the show, but I'll be out and about tomorrow morning, bright and early for that great cup ticket pancake breakfast down at City Hall. Uh, I will be your MC du jour. I'll also be the MC for Sam's Fan Fest coming up on Saturday as well. So I needed to get my my nap in while I could and certainly got that and then some over the weekend. So don't you love those weekends where you just do nothing? They're just they're great on the flip side, not so great because then you look at the laundry list of things that you didn't get done that you should have got done. Oh boy, guess we're going to be doing some of that during the evenings this week. All right, I did a lot of uh, looking on social media, and that's where we're going to go first and foremost to uh, University of Calgary professor in the Department of Political Science. His name is Barry Cooper, had some interesting thoughts in the West Block with Mercedes Stevenson over the weekend. And in case you missed that interview, Barry's going to join us in just a couple of minutes to give us a bit of the Coles Notes version of the interview, but also go into this idea of Western alienation. And is alienation really the right word to describe the anger that is being felt in Western Canada when it comes to what is happening across the country right now? I also want to go back a little bit with Barry and talk about uh, the Stephen Harper conservative government for, and how it managed to kind of keep its hands out of a lot of the provincial business. And that might be the biggest irritant for a lot of people, especially here in Alberta, is you know, we had an economy that was just rolling along. And the Harper government, as much as it wasn't really, let's be real here, something simple like the economic stimulus package that it came up with wasn't an overly conservative thing to do, but it was the right thing to do. Why is it that this federal liberal government can't do the right thing? So we're going to talk to Barry about that and get a little bit more context there. Uh, Brenda mentioned it in the in the news at 3.30 there, is city police will be holding a news conference. Uh, it's scheduled to be in about 25 minutes, but we're going to play you that news conference as we're getting the very latest now on this investigation surrounding the missing mother and her daughter. Uh, the sad news and the reality of the situation, I think, came to roost quite a while ago, but now we're getting some confirmation as police have uh, apparently recovered the bodies in Kananaskis country. Uh, we'll play some of that interview. We'll also or play some of that uh, news conference that is happening at 4 o'clock, right after 4 o'clock. If, if we can time it up right, if everything goes according to plan, it'll start at the exact same time. So we'll get to that after. After four o'clock on the sidewalk would help make drivers slow down even a little bit, especially in pedestrian heavy areas in Bridgeland. That's exactly what they found. Remember those polka dots that were painted back in the late part of the fall? I think it was like late August. Right before I started hosting this show, if memory serves me right, Allie McMillan from the Bridgeline Riverside Community Association is going to join us to talk about what's worked well and what's in store now that they've got some empirical evidence behind what exactly transpired after those polka dots are painted on the road. Who to thunk? We'll also talk about a brand new text line for victims of abuse in our province. And it's very important to mention province versus in our city. I think that a lot of times 
different organizations with the same thought processes still sometimes work in their own silos. And this time around, it's a little different. Is Calgary Communities Against Sexual Abuse uh, are teaming up with their provincial counterparts in, I believe, 11 different communities for this new text and chat line. We'll give you the number and we'll also talk to Daniel Obrey from uh, the CCASA talk more about this new abuse text line and we'll also talk a little friendship uh brand uh, one of the things we like to do on the show is do a full podcast episode where it's like four 15 minute interviews we're going to give you just a small portion of the interview with sam fiorella the founder of the friendship bench there's a new one that has been placed right here in calgary that's very special in his eyes we'll talk to sam by the end of the show today and a whole bunch more to get to here on calgary today When you read a headline like, don't write off Western anger as alienation, it runs a whole lot deeper, according to Calgary professor. You kind of take notice to that. Barry Cooper at the University of Calgary is the one who was commenting on that over the weekend with our own Mercedes Stevenson from the West Block. And I wanted to revisit that conversation just in case you happen to miss it. So Barry joins us now on the program. He is from the University of Calgary, a professor in the Department of Political Science. Barry, thanks so much for the time today. You're quite welcome. Is it really as simple as saying Stephen Harper was from the West and he got it, and the only people who will get it on the federal level are those who are actually from out here and from Alberta? Uh, I I don't think that's entirely uh, adequate, but it's certainly necessary. Um, it's it's possible. It's even you know conceivable in some alternate universe that that uh, some politicians from Laurentian Canada would would have the imagination to see Western Canada as a, a partner rather than a kind of quasi colony of of the country. But uh, that's never happened in uh, since Sir John A. So what has it been since, I mean, before Stephen Harper and the Conservatives were voted in, it, we, we kind of had that quelled fear or alienation or whatever you want to call it. And then ever since uh, the Trudeau Liberals came back, it's been just a complete change of pace. I, I would have thought that maybe the, the, the governing party would have thought, hey, you know, there were some good things that came out of uh, what the Harper government was doing. Not if you're a liberal. <laughs> that's that's the part of their problem. Um, the the liberals have really have not changed uh, since the time of Justin's father, um, and it's it's really ridiculous to expect them to. Uh, the the excuse they've come up with now, of course, is environmentalism and and uh, climate change and all of this stuff. But it's it's this been the same basic agenda that uh, Albertans' vision of, and particularly Alberta, but it's also Saskatchewan, their vision of the country differs with the, uh, the sort of the received and uh, orthodox liberal uh, view. And we, have to, we, uh, we Laurentians, have to do something about those people. Uh, and uh, one of the things that they have done, and they've done it very successfully, is basically destroy the Alberta economy. And, and this is not a byproduct. This is absolutely deliberate. Mm-hmm. Over the weekend, you chatted with Mercedes Stevenson from the West Block and said that alienation is an overly simplistic term. So for those who didn't watch or weren't able to watch, what did you mean by that? Uh, alienation is a term from 19th century psychology uh, and from Marxism, uh, and it, it simply does not apply. Uh, the, the context 
of the term is completely inappropriate. Albertans and Saskatchewanians are are angry. Uh, they're disappointed. Uh, they realize that they've been betrayed by their national government. But that's not alienation. Alienation says there's something wrong with them, uh, them out there and out out in the crazy part of the country. So we have to we have to you know do their thinking for them because they're clearly cap- incapable of doing it themselves. And that's just condescending nonsense. Mm-hmm. From that standpoint, during the Harper years, was there a feeling back uh, from that, say, the Ontario and Quebec populace were thinking, hey, the, the Harper government isn't looking out for us at all, or, you know, had that same feeling of alienation or that same feeling of bitterness that we have out here towards the Trudeau government? I don't think so. Uh, Stephen Harper never interfered with... Uh, with the rather stupid policies of the, say, the Wynn government, uh, or the Liberal government in Ontario preceding her, uh, they certainly didn't interfere with the internal affairs of Quebec. Uh, and that's because uh, Harper had a, a very clear view of what uh, federalism was. It meant leaving the provinces alone and their jurisdiction. That's why he, he didn't have these you know, ridiculous federal-provincial conferences, or quote-unquote first ministers' conferences, which are basically exercises in obfuscation. Uh, he was pretty clear that Section 91 and 92 had had not been repealed, uh, and the current government uh, doesn't understand that. Uh, that's why they uh, they want to interfere so much in everybody's business, particularly, say, with a carbon tax. Is that a big part of it? Is it's almost like this feeling of micromanaging, you know, even in, in an office space, you get that feeling that your boss is always looking over your shoulder. That's kind of the same sort of feel, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. <laughs> and if you look at, at the, um, the kind of uh, moralistic fervor which, with, with which many of uh, Justin Trudeau's cabinet ministers uh, speak, uh, you can you can tell that they think that they are on the side of righteousness and truth, and everybody who disagrees with them is either a moron uh, or evil. And uh, it's you know that's no way to conduct uh, a federal uh, regime. I mean we're you know it's the Americans have their own problems, but they don't have the kind of federation that we do. And uh, and and I think the liberals have never really come to terms with that, at least not the modern incarnation of the Liberals from the from the time of, uh, of Justin's father. Is that going to be a challenge for, and we even saw it here in Alberta, was there was that anger that was drummed up, and, and rightfully so. Um, is this going to be a matter of, regardless of what the outcome is, October is progressives, and I mean even the Alberta NDP, which is the opposition party, or the federal liberals, should they uh, lose the next federal election, or any progressive party, do they really need to rethink their strategy around that whole notion of, hey, if you're not a, if you're not with us, you're completely against us and your uh, every name under the sun. Well, look, I, I teach political philosophy, and from the time of the Greeks, from Plato and Aristotle, the most important political virtue was moderation. And that's what these guys have lost, particularly uh, those on the left, the, the quote-unquote progressives. Uh, they, they never seem to be very moderate in their demands, and they certainly are not very reflective on, on say, what, uh, what progress is. Like, it's a you know it's an ideological fantasy that grew up from the 18th century, and they've never thought that through. From that standpoint, then, is it one thing to be progressive in terms of uh, your social beliefs, and another to be progressive in your fiscal beliefs? And are we moving the country forward when it comes to the fiscal uh, responsibilities that we do have? And is that being addressed at all by any of these progressive parties? Um, 
if if it has, they've done it in such deep secrecy that no one knows about it. Uh, they are they're the, the fiscal irresponsibility of quote unquote progressive parties is really is uh, just astonishing. I mean, what the NDP left uh, Jason Kenney to clean up is is uh, is a you know a major mess. Uh, and whoever replaces Justin Trudeau will have will have the same kind of heritage. It's if, you know, the left likes likes spending other people's money, mainly the money of of the the children, the next generation, and in terms of debt, and then leaves it to conservatives to you know make the hard choices and try and clean up the mess they leave behind. But on the flip side of that, one could make the argument that the previous conservative uh, progressive conservative government here in Alberta saddled the NDP with a lot of tough decisions in in the realm of hey look at deferred maintenance hey look at deferred uh, infrastructure projects they look at all of these different things that were not addressed because of uh, hiding behind this idea of hey we're remaining fiscally prudent and at what point do we need to be uh progressive not just in terms of our social policies, but also when it comes to being fiscally uh, progressive and moving things forward so that we don't have those backlogs down the road. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I don't think that the last uh, decade of PC rule in this province was particularly conservative. Uh, I think it was they were almost as, as irresponsible as, as the NDP in, in their short tenure. Uh, you know, it's, of, of course, responsibility and moderation and common sense and uh, sort of normal things that you try and teach your kids uh, are just as operative in, in political life as they are in family life. One final question for you, and it goes back to the the original argument from over the weekend and about these attacks on Western Canada. And what do Western, what kind of leverage do Western Canadians have at this point? Because everybody kind of has that preconceived notion of, hey, uh, once it's decided out in Quebec and, and Ontario, the the election is over. And if uh, the Liberals do a good enough good enough job of selling their message to the east it's not going to matter a whole lot so how do you get that message across to those uh, out east about what we're feeling out here uh well it's it's not it's not that difficult it's not as if they're unaware <laughs> but there is a conflict in interests and so it's you have to uh, exercise our interest which basically has to do with petroleum uh to central canada and definitely to the west coast uh without that um you know they are going to be in as difficult great difficulty as we are and you know that's that's all we have left because they're not they're not very reasonable they they're out to do us a great deal of damage and they're succeeding Barry I appreciate the time this afternoon thank you so much for joining us you're welcome Barry Cooper in the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary. Going over to the text line, I'm getting hatred from both sides. It's awesome. Uh, on the one side, what a bunch of crap. Stephen Harper is responsible for interfering in the consultation process. He's the reason people are mad now. He's the reason the courts have overruled the consultation process. How many pipelines did Stephen Harper approve? If your guest uses terms like left and right, yeah, no, he's already on an agenda. Can you get someone more neutral to talk to? Hey, I have guests from both sides of the spectrum. Let's be real here. I don't disagree. I think that there were some things that the Stephen Harper government could have done better on. On the flip side, as I've said on the show time and time again, Justin Trudeau's been in power for four years now. How could you not look at some of what has happened under the, under the conservative government and go, okay, this is good, this is bad, let's use the stuff that was good and, and improve upon the things that were bad. You could have changed this whole consultation process with a flick of the switch. And instead, you're sitting there hiding behind, oh, it was the conservatives for five, for eight years. You've been in power for four years. Get over it.
It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. It probably comes as no surprise to a lot of people when they hear about an increased demand for sexual assault services and the different organizations within our city and within our province and within our country that are are tasked with trying to help these survivors go through the processes that are needed to get themselves out of those situations or beyond that is uh, to be able to feel comfortable enough to get help. Uh, they, they're looking for different ways of reaching out. And one of those ways was realized today with Alberta's one line for sexual violence. It's one number that you can use to call or text. It's 1-866-403-8000. They unveiled it today in light of the I Believe You movement, the Me Too movement, all the other movements that have been going on. And again, it's that response to the dramatically increased demand for sexual assault services And officials say in some centers that demand has more than doubled in just the last few years. To dive more into this line and provide a little bit of context here, we welcome to the program uh, Daniel Obrey, the CEO of Calgary Communities Against Sexual Abuse. Danielle, uh, thanks so much for the time this afternoon. Thanks for asking me to come. Uh, talk a little bit about today's announcement and, and sort of, I guess, in light of moving along with the times and trying to give uh, victims a, a bigger voice and a voice in which they can you can utilize on a number of different platforms. Right. Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, absolutely, we've had sort of this flurry of awareness around the issue of sexual violence over the last three, four, five years. And, um, you know, it's awesome because for so many years, for decades, for centuries, you know, this issue has existed in silence and secrecy and shaming of people and blaming people. Um, And so, we're you know, we finally have seen the light as a society and... um, are seeing that people need to be supported and, and that this is a crime of violence um, that people don't ask for. Um, and so we, we need to respond. And I think this, this new text and chat line um, is new uh, for us province-wide. And it's another avenue or venue for people to reach out to, to um, for support or information. One of the things I take away from it is that it's province-wide. It's not, you know, the Calgary Communities Against Sexual Abuse coming up with it or any other group. It's everyone working together. And talk about the importance of having that dialogue amongst an entire province and a provincial network of groups that can come together. Oh, I mean, it's a phenomenal experience. It truly is. You know, uh, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, we were all tiny little centers that, you know, were so under-resourced. Um, we were barely making, you know, our ends meet um, and struggling to, you know, do any service provision that was beyond um, the, the little amount that we got. And this just has opened up doors for us. You know, as a provincial organization, we've always worked together very, very closely. Um, you know, it doesn't mean we always agree on everything, but we appreciate, all of us, we do, that we can't do this work on our own. We need community support. Um, and, you know, we're receiving that now and we're able to provide this kind of service for, you know, a, a group of Albertans that perhaps have never, uh, you know, felt that they had resources or, or the opportunity to reach out and get support that they need. 
from a survivor standpoint, the other side of this is the ability to talk to someone without actually physically talking to them because that uh, can be perceived, I suppose, as a barrier for them is, hey, I can't pick up a phone because, you know, my abuser, for example, might hear what I'm saying and, and then or they might be scrolling through their their uh, phone lists and, and all of a sudden asking questions. There's that fear element that always plays into it as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you're dealing with with situations of violence, there's always uh, potentially a safety risk for people. And and that's definitely one of the things that we do on on the line in text and chat is we do risk assessments constantly with people to make sure that they're safe um, and that talking about it is safe for them and that they're safe emotionally. So um, it's just another great opportunity um, for for people to reach out in in a different way than than maybe they weren't comfortable with, with before. And it's not just English either. 200 languages, including mm-hmm. Cree in there as well, because we all know the, the diversification of our of our population uh, needs those kinds of uh, supports available to them. Right. And, you know, again, provincially, we've always sort of had our eye on how can we provide more accessible services. And, you know, certainly, you know, I've been in a situation where I've had to, you know, where I was trying to learn a, di- an, a different language that wasn't my first language. And, you know, it is a difficult thing to do. And I can't even imagine trying to talk about, you know, such a personal experience of sexual violence um, in a language that wasn't my first language. So great, a great opportunity um, to to create that for people. You call this uh, an opportunity. What, where do we go from here? Well, you know, I think, um, I wish I could say that we had enough resources, um, but you know, that we're really on an uphill um, sort of climb here in terms of, of talking about this issue. And again, as I said, you know, we're, we're dealing with years and years and years of, of people that are survivors that have never talked, that have never reached out for help. Um, and it's still happening, you know, recent incidents that happen. And so, you know, uh, we have to, we have to look at the fact that we have, we need more funding and more resources to provide these services because our, you know, our wait lists are, are continuing. Um, you know, I, I'm very interested to see what, what this new service is going to be like in terms of numbers. Definitely what I hear from the distress center is that, you know, it can be a small explosion. Um, mm. And, you know, that's good. We've never shied away from that just because we haven't had the resources. Uh, we just we just work harder and we strategize, uh, but you can't maintain that for a long period of time. So, you know, just, yeah, putting a shout out there for people to continue to support sexual assault services um, and that we continue to need people. We can't do this alone. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Danielle, I do appreciate the time and the insight this afternoon. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate uh, the conversation. Again, it's called Alberta's One Line for Sexual Violence. If you want to throw this into your phone for future reference, the number one eight six six four zero three. I know that's confusing. I almost started with 403. 1-866-403. 8,000 is what Alberta's one line, and there are responders willing to listen and provide uh, non-judgmental support and information resources to aid in the caller's healing journey. Uh, again, you can call, you can text, uh, you can chat as well with them. So uh, that is Danielle Obrey, the CEO of Calgary Communi- uh, Communities Against Sexual Abuse here on Calgary Today. We heard about these 
polka dots in Bridgeland. A year, what was it, August, I suppose? It was back in August. And it was in an effort to calm traffic in the area. We're getting some uh, ideas to how it all worked. Allie McMillan with the Bridgeland Riverside Community Association joining us now. Allie, thanks so much for the time. Pleasure to be here. It's amazing. Another feel-good story out of Bridgeland for you guys. And this one, when we first started talking about polka dots on the roadway, I think everybody kind of looked at you like, okay, this sounds kind of crazy, but it seems like it's worked. What have you guys seen and what's been the reaction from not only commuters, but people in the community as well? Yeah, it definitely created a lot of um, conversation, which has been great. But uh, the beauty of this project is there actually is some science behind it. And we've done some measurements, uh, both pre-pilot and post-pilot, and the results have been um, really successful. Walk us through those results and and what you guys noticed anecdotally. Yeah, so the results have basically showed a reduction in speeds through that section of the community by six to seven kilometers an hour, which is a really successful project um, for traffic calming. Um, So as a community, of course, that means people can cross the street without rushing and they can be seen by vehicles and have a shorter crossing distance to get from one side of the street to the other. So we've seen it bring a real vibrancy to the general plaza, which is at the heart of our community. More people are gathering there. We have a bunch of seating and lighting added, and it's just brought a lot more heart to our community. Did the results surprise you in any way? I felt like, I think a lot of us felt it, it was going to work, but yeah, it surprised me just by how, how successful it was and how much those speeds were reduced. What kinds of things did the community learn after going through this process and putting together a pilot project like this? Oh, a lot. I mean, that's the great thing about a pilot project. You know, we tested this out in winter. We were testing it out in summer. You know, there's going to be, always be tweaks and, you know, things to improve for the next time. Um So it's been a fantastic learning experience start to finish. What kinds of things did you take away from it when, you know, we could do something a little different here, as you alluded to? Yeah, well, there's, you know, we're we're learning different issues with potentially like the blind community and where there isn't a curb and where there's a bollard. And then how can we how can we put something on the road so that a cane could still feel where the other curb is now? You know, things like that. Um, that are ongoing that you learn as you try these things. What kinds of things do you hope other communities take away from this thinking outside the box mentality that you guys did take when it comes to pedestrian crossings? Well, what's great is the city seems to be open to innovation right now and piloting things. And I guess the huge success here is this was really cheap and quick to implement and it didn't cost, you know, a huge amount of infrastructure and we can test it. And then when we actually build the infrastructure for real, um, we don't make mistakes. And we have, you know, a better better indicator as to what's going to work and, and what the issues are. So I think that's uh, a real success to share throughout the city. It was all just a little bit of paint. It wasn't like you were going after major transformational changes to an interpass or interchange. Absolutely. And like I say, quick and cheap. A lot quicker and cheaper than um, lights and some of those major infrastructure things. So, you know, it's just, again, great to try different techniques. Do you have other plans in place in terms of other intersections that the polka dots might appear in or other kinds of projects that you'd like to uh, expand upon with this idea? And where do we go from here? Yeah, I, we're actually doing a pilot project uh, on McDougal Road coming up this summer um, in an area where we have high seniors population. 
and we're partnering with some students from the Netherlands who are doing a design for that street and making it safer for people with low mobility to actually get across the street. So stay tuned. This is not the end from Bridgeland. Fantastic to hear, Allie. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of an update today. Thanks. Just goes to show you never know what might work. Never hurts to actually put an idea ahead because, again, it might just happen to work and then you're then it's aces wanted to reset the situation surrounding the disappearance of jasmine lovett and her 22 month old daughter Aaliyah sanderson uh we might you might have heard it during just before or during the news at four o'clock wanted to reset it again in case you're just hopping in the car now Staff Sergeant Martin Chavetta addressing the media just uh, around 4 o'clock there. And you can tell in his voice a very emotional update provided today. At approximately 4 a.m. this morning, members of the CPS located the bodies of a woman and child in Kananaskis. Although formal identification must be made by the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, we believe we have located the remains of 25-year-old Jasmine Lovett and 22-month-old Aaliyah Sanderson. On behalf of the entire police service, we'd like to extend our heartfelt condolences to the Lovett and Sanderson families. Jasmine would have celebrated her 26th birthday last week, and this is truly a tragic loss. Earlier today, a man was taken into custody, and charges of second degree murder are currently pending. The suspect cannot be named by the police until charges are officially laid by the Justice of the Peace. This is expected to occur later today or early tomorrow morning. However, I can confirm that the suspect is the same man who was taken into custody two weeks ago. This has been a lengthy and complex investigation. I will share what details I can with you, but please keep in mind that our primary goal at this point is to see this case through the conclusion in court. And to do that successfully, we must maintain the integrity of the evidence and limit what information is shared publicly from this point on. What I can tell you is that we believe Jasmine and Aaliyah were killed sometime between Tuesday, April 16th and Wednesday, April 17th. We believe their bodies were subsequently transported by the suspect to the Grizzly Creek area sometime between Wednesday, April 17th and Saturday, April 20th. We believe the suspect and Jasmine were in a relationship and this was a targeted attack motivated by domestic related matters. I appreciate that you still have lots of questions about the timeline, the evidence that led us to locate their bodies and the motive for these murders. But these details that are crucial to the evidence that will be presented at trial and can't be released today. On behalf of the entire Calgary Police Service Homicide Unit, I want to thank all our partners who helped with the search along the me- with the media as well as the public. This investigation is not over. We will continue to gather evidence in the days, weeks and months to come. If anyone was in the Grizzly Creek recreational area between Wednesday, April 17th and Sunday, April 21st and noticed anything suspicious or a grey Mercedes SUV, we would still like to speak to you. Please call the Homicide Tip Unit hotline at 403-428-8877 or provide tips anonymously through Crime Stoppers. Thank you. I will now answer what questions I can. So as we uh, have said, the 
and the earliest stages which meant that maybe the bodies would have been burned. So what was the condition of the bodies? I can tell you that the initial search of the uh, crime scene in Kananaskis um, provides evidence which is consistent with pre previous media releases. When was the arrest made? Uh, it was made uh, this morning, uh, just after 11 a.m. So after the bodies were found? Yes. So can you say that there was some evidence burned, but you have recovered bodies? Sorry? You have recovered bodies, though? Yes. And uh, we are currently working with the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, and autopsy results are uh, still pending. And we don't expect those results to be uh, given to us uh, until tomorrow evening. Can, can you just clarify, oh, sorry, sir, clarify what you said that you believe the suspect and Ms. Lovett were in a relationship? Yes. Can you just say what, what, what could have gone wrong? said it was a domestic? Yeah, and I'll just uh, leave it. It was a domestic relationship, uh, which deteriorated over a period of time. Now, there have been some questions asked of me as to why you would ask the question of whether they were bought or if bodies were found. And it's all about context. A lot of time when you ask that question as a reporter, the question becomes, was it a body? Was it remains? Was it pieces? Like, And, and I try not to use that in, in general terms, but you want that context to, so that you maybe get a, a hint as to what police have found. Clearly, not the best of scenes, and it's clearly something that has a lot of even veteran police officers like Staff Sergeant Martin Chavetta uh, shaken up, as you met, as you heard in his voice. Wanted to read uh, to you as well the family from uh, the statement from the Lovett family, and I quote. Our family would like to extend a heartfelt gratitude to the entire Calgary Police Service as well as those who have worked diligently in the search for Jasmine and her baby girl, Aaliyah. We would also like to thank the public for their continued support, which has meant a great deal to us. Our lives have been devastated and our hearts are heavy. We are trying to understand how this tragedy could have happened to our loved ones. That again from the Lovett family. If you're heading around the downtown core over the next few days, you may notice a yellow bench. And today, the Canadian Mental Health Association Calgary region became the first location in Calgary and also the first non-school location in Canada to receive a yellow friendship bench for mental health. Today, of course, being the launch of Mental Health Week. Sam Fiorella is the founder of the Friendship Bench. He lost his 19-year-old son, Lucas, to suicide in October 2014. And since then, he's dedicated his time to spreading awareness about mental health issues and getting help uh, and getting people talking more than anything. And I had a full-scale discussion with him earlier on in the, in the day and wanted to play just a uh, short snippet of that where we talked about how parents and teachers and adults need to include the kids in the conversation as well. Um, I think the, the, the key message, I, I do a lot of speaking to parents as well as to students, and it still amazes me the number of parents that are uneducated on mental health themselves. And it's one of the reasons why students are so reluctant to reach out to parents when they're suffering. We know that 50% of the people in Canada that are suffering with some form of mental illness never speak about it and never report it. And that's in part causing this escalating rate of suicides in this country. Um, and so what I say to parents is don't make the same mistake I made. I was ignorant of mental health. I didn't know that um, how to look for it, how to ask the questions. 
Um, so if you can educate yourself, and CMA, CMHA here in Calgary has some great resources for parents that are free and easily available, educate yourself so that you can ask your kids the right questions. And once you ask them the questions, be ready to not just dismiss what they're going through, but to listen and to accept what they're going through. That will make a big difference in them opening up. In your travels, do you get the sense that the conversation, especially from a parent or an adult perspective, is one, you know, when you talk about how they're not uh, they're not educated on a lot of things, is it a willful ignorance to it? Or is it something where they just don't think it's going to happen to them? Or where do you, why do you think that it is that uh, much of a challenge for adults to wrap our heads around? Great question as well. And the answer is both. I've seen many cases where parents simply refuse to talk about suicide because it's a cultural or religious taboo. Um, and yet those are the families where there seems to be the highest uh, reported cases because kids are brought up in such a way that they can't ask for help. Um, I have one uh, kid in particular who reached out to me when he heard my story, was brave enough to tell me that he had considered suicide. I connected him to some peer counseling and suggested that he talk to his parents if he was serious. He mentioned it to his parents, and they beat him. They didn't beat him because he was feeling ill, but they beat him because he told someone outside the family uh, for the shame that it brought on the family. So there's a large stigma still within many cultures um, in our society. But the other side is just because we grew up in a world where we had the resiliency skills to deal with our, our, our challenges. We grew up as boomers, you know, well, suck it up, work hard get a good education. If you get a degree, you're going to get a great paying job and live happily. Now, getting a doctorate is, you know, I, I know Uber drivers that have doctorates in something. Uh, a good education and working hard doesn't, doesn't mean you're going to get into a university. It doesn't mean you're going to get a job if you graduate. And owning a home is next to impossible today for this next generation. So parents need to understand that this next generation is going through something that is incrementally worse and more difficult and more challenging than what we went through. And so we can't treat them the way we were treated. We need to educate ourselves uh, more than we thought we needed to in order to be able to help them. And even beyond that would be is to, as a parent or as an adult who's dealing with this, is to not internalize it on your own and say, this isn't uh, an indictment on my ability as a parent. It's to make sure that the, the actual indictment is making sure that I deal with it in the proper way. Exactly. And this is, you know, and I don't want to come across as I am, you know, berating all parents for not being adequate. This is something that none of us, and I'm throwing myself in the ring, I lost a child to suicide and I had no clue what it looked like or how to deal with it, which may be one of the reasons why I missed some of the signs potentially. I don't know. Uh, we are ill-equipped. We have not been educated. Um, so this is not something that's your fault. But now that you're hearing this conversation, if you're hearing it, I'm encouraging everybody to take a minute and to get themselves educated. Sam Fiorella, who lost his son Lucas almost five years ago now, uh, founded what has become quite a, a big thing now, the Friendship Bench. You can follow him at Twitter, at Yellow is for Hello. Uh, the full conversation you can hear on my podcast at Calgary Today. Uh, I've tweeted the link at Calgary Today if you want to check that out. 
just want to take a moment to thank you for taking the time to download and listen to the Calgary Today podcast. Don't forget to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'll chat with you soon.